0: It's really lovely to be with you this morning. One of the great privileges I have in my role is to visit different churches most Sundays and to see the work of God in all sorts of different traditions across the Archdeaconry, across the Diocese of Gloucester. Uh, The other thing that's great about my role is I can tell the same joke again and again and again in the hope that nobody has heard it. So one of you two of you may have heard this before, but um, Archdeacon's visit parishes, and occasionally they go and stay for a whole weekend, not very often, uh, much to the relief of clergy spouses. Uh, but there was a day, where, a weekend, where uh, a vicar had invited the archdeacon to come and spend the whole weekend with the parish, uh, to preach on Sunday but do things on the Saturday. The vicar was looking forward to this very much because he didn't have to prepare a sermon. The vicar's wife was a bit more anxious because, while well, they had quite a few teenage children who could occasionally be rowdy. The weekend seemed to go quite well, the archdeacon seemed to fit in okay, Uh, got on well with the parishioners, got on well with the vicar. But the vicar's wife couldn't help thinking that there was a bit of a gulf between her and the archdeacon. Every time she walked into the room, he seemed to freeze and stop speaking and then sidle out of the room. She thought nothing more of it until on Sunday evening, the archdeacon left, she breathed a sigh of relief and then went into the guest room where the archdeacon had been staying. Uh, And there, by the side of the bed, were a little pile of towels and flannels that she'd left for the archdeacon's use, completely untouched, with a note on it that she'd left for the sake of her teenage children earlier in the week, but that she'd forgotten to remove. It said simply, if you touch these, I'll kill you. (laughs) So I know you've been doing a series In Mark's gospel, a great gospel. I love Mark. Um, Mark is the activist amongst the gospel writers. Everything comes fast and thick and furious. Uh, He doesn't waste words. He just tells a story and then moves on quickly to the next story. Um, And we come now to this extraordinary passage of the crucifixion of Christ, which Richard read for us earlier, but I'd like just to read Again, briefly, I'm just getting to that age where sometimes I need reading glasses and sometimes I don't. I'm never quite sure when I will. So Mark, uh, chapter 15, verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The notice written on the written notice of the charge against him read, The king. Of the Jews, They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Father, we thank you for the gift of your written word. We pray as we look at this familiar story, that as we engage with the written word, we might encounter the living word. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour afresh. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me to speak on the cross, the crucifixion. Something that, as Richard said earlier, changes the whole course of history. It is the most significant part of the Christian life the life, death, and resurrection with the crucifixion in the center. Some of you are Christians already. Some of you may not be, and you may wonder why on earth Christians choose as the symbol of their faith an instrument of barbaric torture that the Romans used to use and just occasionally people still use today. The answer is that the crucifixion of Jesus is of enormous significance, but it's also a complex and in many ways a mysterious subject. And I think it's important that we hang on to the mystery of the cross. For St. Paul, who writes much of the New Testament, many of the letters in the New Testament, the cross is absolutely central to how he sees himself and his ministry and his calling. None more so than in 1 Corinthians, in his letter to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this to the church in Corinth, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else, says Paul, mattered. That was my aim in coming to you. In the earlier chapter, the chapter before, he says, for the message of the cross Is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross, says Paul, makes all the difference in the world. It's either foolishness or its power, depending on how you respond to it. Again, in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Some of us this morning will find the cross a stumbling block. Some of us will think, well, it's just foolishness. Some people who are exploring faith, and I often talk to people about this, stumble over the cross. They want to know what the Christian faith has to say. They want to give their lives to God. But somehow the cross and its uniqueness, as Christians claim, can be a stumbling block to that journey of faith. So it's a challenge to think about the cross. What I want to say this morning, I want to set firmly within the context of Mark's gospel. Mark, as I say, doesn't waste a word. He goes through things quickly and in a rush. But words count for Mark. And one of Mark's, amongst most of his themes, several themes, one of Mark's overriding themes all the way through the Gospel, I'm sure you'll have seen this several times as you've been working through it, is the question of Jesus' identity. Mark wants to be clear about who Jesus is and where he gets his authority from. Mark is really concerned about Jesus' identity and his authority. Right from the beginning, the beginning of Mark's gospel, we read the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Sets his stall out right at the beginning. This is who I'm going to talk about, Jesus the Messiah. Uh, Some translations say Jesus Christ. Christ and Messiah, most of you will know, mean exactly the same thing. Christ is simply the Greek word of uh, Messiah, which is the Jewish word, meaning the Anointed One, God's Anointed One. The people of Israel have been longing for hundreds of years for God to send his Messiah. And, says Mark, right at the beginning, this is his story. The Messiah, the Son of God. It doesn't take us long in Mark to get to the question of authority. In chapter one, towards the end, we read the people were so amazed when they hear Jesus teaching that they ask each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. And then, In chapter 2 of Mark, we read of Jesus taking on authority. You remember that lovely story of the man who is paralyzed, who can't walk, and his friends bring him to Jesus. And because they can't get to him, because there's a crowd around Jesus, they make a hole in the roof and drop him through. And Jesus looks at this man and sees not just his physical condition, but sees his deepest need. And says, son, your sins are forgiven. The people who are crowding around, especially the Jewish leaders, are outraged. Only God can forgive sins, they say. He's lost the plot. He doesn't know what he's doing. Rubbish, boo. And all those other things we yelled this morning. And Jesus says, to show that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins... Get up, take up your bed, and go home. And the man does. And it's these two themes of identity and authority that Mark brings to this short passage about the crucifixion. Who is this man on the cross? And what authority does he hold when it looks as if he's lost all his authority on the cross? There are various ways, aren't there, of looking at complex and mysterious subjects. Some of you are people who are simply want to ask questions like, well, what does it do? Uh, and what does it do for me? Some of you want to know, well, what's the context? Why, why do we need this thing, whatever it is? What's the background? What does it help to solve? What problem does it answer? And others will be much more interested in the mechanics. I want to know exactly how it works. So if over the summer you are jetting off on one of these majestic beasts, some of you will want to say, well, the answer to the first two is obvious. What does it do for me? It gets me to, I was going to say warmer climates, but maybe it gets me to a cooler climate <laughs> this summer. Why do I need it? Well, because otherwise the whole of my holiday would be taken up just getting there. And then I'd have to turn around and start coming back and tell my boss I was going to be late by two weeks. But some of you might be people who like to know the intricacies. You might say, well, I want to know exactly how the mechanics and the thermodynamics of a jet engine works. You might even say, I want to know the aerodynamics that keep thousands of tons of metal floating gracefully in the air. It's amazing, isn't it? If I remember my engineering degree, it's something to do with the Bernoulli equation. But wouldn't it be strange, wouldn't it be sad if you said, actually, until I understand all the mechanics, the aerodynamics, the thermodynamics, I'm not going to get on one of those beasts. And I think sometimes we argue so much about the mechanics of the cross that we can risk simply allowing it and God through it to do what he wants to do in us and for us and through us. So this morning I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about the mechanics of the cross, what theologians call, theologians call the models of the atonement. Andrew will explain all those to you in detail at any point that you want to know. But I am gonna ask some questions about what the cross does for us and why it might be needed and why it might make a real difference in our lives, individually and corporately, today. Even those two questions, those two more broad questions, what exactly does it do and why do we need it, aren't neatly packaged by Mark or by any of the gospel writers. They give us glimpse, they use words that they expect us to dig into, to understand, to make connections from. The gift of scripture is not the gift of a user manual. It's the gift of invitation into relationship and engagement and challenge and encounter. And so when that passage is read, I think there's at least a couple of things that Mark is wanting us to dwell on. And I want to pick out a phrase and a word that he uses more than once. The first is the phrase, King of the Jews. One of the things about Mark's gospel is that you often find people saying things uh, in mockery that actually turn out to be true. Mark is writing his gospel to people of faith, and he wants us to say, oh look, they think they're making a joke, but the irony is they're telling the truth. And I think that's one of these phrases. The Roman soldiers in verse 18, if you remember, in the midst of their mockery, their brutality, so easy to lose sight of that, smacking him on the head with a stick, putting a crown of thorns on him, spitting in his face. The one who made blind people see has Romans, torturing and spitting in his face. And they cry out, Hail, King of the Jews! Mark, I think, wants to say, they don't know how true that is. The written charge we read against him, it was common in uh, Roman crucifixions to put the charge above the prisoner as a way of deterring others from doing the same thing. But instead of rebellion or murder, or robbery. The charge, Mark says, is simply the king of the Jews. It's extraordinary, it's not even he pretended to be or thought he was, it's simply the king of the Jews. This is why Jesus is being crucified, Mark wants to say to us. Think about it and what it means. And even the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, talk about this Messiah, this King of the Jews. So the first phrase we'll look at in a moment to try and make sense of the crucifixion is simply the King of the Jews. The other is the word that again Mark uses more than once and it's the word save. Verse 30, passers by, cry out, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. And again, I think that's ringing with irony. You're spot on, Mark. You're spot on, teachers of Israel. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And we want to explore, he wants us, I think, to explore why that might be. A word and a phrase then that might help us as we explore the context to begin to grasp what the cross means for us, but also for the whole cosmos. And I say that because I think our tendency as Christians constantly is to draw everything in, all main significant theology, into just me. And I think God's picture of what he is doing with creation is far, far bigger than we ever grasped. The fam- most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16. You all probably know it. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. We often read that as God so loved me, or God so loved Trinity, or God so loved evangelical charismatic Christians, or God so loved human souls. But the word that John uses, the Greek word, is cosmos. Lord so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son. So the cross has cosmic implications, as Richard mentioned earlier. And it's important to hold that, I think, in mind. So let's look at that word, save. What is Mark perhaps trying to say to us about the cross, when he uses repeatedly that word save. The Greek word is the word sozo. Some of you may well have come across it in a number of settings. It's a word that's based on being safe, being in a safe place. And it's a holistic word. It's variously translated as healed, set free, made whole, kept safe, restored. It's a word that's about human well being and flourishing rooted in being made safe. And Mark wants to say to us, the cross of Jesus Christ provides for you and me and the whole creation a safe place. One of the great privileges I have in my role as Archdeacon is that I'm a a trustee of uh, numerous charities. I keep finding out new ones and my secretary says, "Oh, didn't you know you were a a trustee there? But one of them is The Rock in North Cheltenham. Some of you may know of its work, doing a fantastic work. Um, amongst Particularly, at the moment, they're doing quite a lot of work uh, with, with children who've been excluded from mainstream school. And I was at a, a, an event just a couple of weeks ago, and they'd done a little video clip with, just with some of the children talking about what The Rock means to them. And several of them said, The Rock is a safe place. And I thought that was fantastic. I think what they meant, having been excluded from school, having presumably often come from tough backgrounds, perhaps being subject to all sorts of bullying, physical and online, they said the rock is a place of safety. I think they were articulating something without understanding it, of what the cross is meant to be, a place, where we can be utterly the people we were created to be, to be ourselves, to be safe and free. We'll come back to that a little later. But what's the problem? What's the problem the cross is trying to solve? Why would God need to send his son? Why would God in Christ need to come amongst us to give his life to save us? Couldn't he have done that some other way if he's God? Surely there are other options. I love the work of um, Tom Wright, the former Bishop of Durham. Some of it's really easy to understand, some of it's impossible to understand. But he says that God works in human history, in the relationship that he builds with humanity through the Bible, that's the story the Bible tells, in five acts, he says if it was a, a play, it would have five acts, and, and these are they. Act one is creation, act two is four, act three is Israel, act four is Jesus, and act five is where we find ourselves today. Living out, improvising, and living out that story in the light of acts one to four. You know the story probably very well, the story of creation told in Genesis 1 and 2 is Act 1. And the key thing I want us to realise from that is that we were created in God's image for his delight. Lovely to see B and Bethany Rose baptized this morning. And I guess they bear something of the image of their parents. As they get older, they might like that and they might not like that. When I look at someone or when someone looks at me and says, oh, you're a bit like me, sometimes I can take that as a compliment. At creation, God looks at us and says, you are the spitting image of me. Something of my image is invested in you. It's a story to celebrate. It's a story of God who makes us and says, You are worth everything to me. Genesis talks about God looking at us, the whole of creation, and saying it's very good. I think that's a bit of an understatement. I think God delights in his creation. And that's at the heart of our understanding of the cross. But there's a challenge. God, part of being made in the image of God is that God takes an enormous risk and that risk is to give us free will free choice choice to give live under God's reign and rule or to live for ourselves to choose not to make us as puppets because that would diminish his image in us and so act 2 is the fall told particularly in Genesis 3 And sometimes people argue about whether Genesis 3 is a historical event. I want to say it is an event that was then and is now that spans all time. It's not just a historical event. Because the story of the fall, Adam and Eve get the blame for it, is our story. It's a story of choosing to live life my way, not God's. It's a story of disobedience, a story of God saying, to live my way, to live to your fullest extent, is to live with my boundaries. And us saying, thank you very much God, but we'll be the ones that determine the rules. On your bike, we don't need you. It's a story of human beings dismissing God and choosing to put our agenda above God's agenda for his creation. And it's our story, isn't it? St. Augustine sort of developed it into something, a theory of original sin, which gets a lot of press these days. But I think there's a lot of truth in that. I sometimes say to people, if you don't believe, at least in some way, in original sin, you've never had a toddler. But it's our story. The story of the fall is our story. Choosing our agenda over God's. And the Bible presents that as the way in which sin enters the whole of creation. And that little word sin, I think, gets a lot of misunderstanding around it today. Many people today would say, oh, that's just a Victorian uh, conception invented by the church of the past and archdeacons today to try and keep us in our place. But properly understood, sin, I think, is simply a way of describing anything that is destructive of God's very good creation, including you and me. It's anything that defaces, that devalues, that pollutes God's image in humanity. It's anything that controls us that we should be in control of. Sin is addiction. Sin is... Anything that tears apart human relationship with God, that tears apart creation's relationship with the Father who created us to be in relationship together. I wonder if any of you speak Spanish. Hands up if you've got a little smattering of Spanish. No, yeah, one or two of you. Great. I, I, I've been to Spain a couple of times. I, my main stock phrase whenever I go anywhere is I can as long as I can say dos uh, teruelfa, which means two beers, then I'm just about all right. But when I was in Spain last, I noticed a bottle of beer with this on the neck. Sin. I thought, that's strange, a bottle of sin. Someone tell us what sin means in Spanish? Without, without. exactly. And do you know, I think that's a brilliant definition of sin. Sin is simply life chosen to live without God. C.S. Lewis says there are only two types of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says with a heavy heart, thy will be done. And so the fall is a picture of sin, of disconnection, of a gulf growing between humanity and creation and the Father who created it to be in harmony with him bigger than any human gulf, any gulf that you might look down on from outer space. It's the story of disconnection. St. Augustine had one of my favourite prayers in the Church of History. Lord, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. The fall sin is a tearing apart of that connection. A lot of the stories in the Bible are about that disconnection, the story of the prodigal son, of the son running away and saying to his dad, I don't ever want to see you again. Story of Zacchaeus, estranged, rejected by his community, desperate for reconnection. The story of the fall is our story. It's a story Of the universe, of the chronic need we feel to be reconnected when we've been disconnected. The word save, sozo, builds on that idea of reconciliation, restoration, reconnection. And Mark says that's what the cross is all about. So why? Why the cross? Why does Jesus, who Christians believe is God himself, have to die on the cross? Couldn't God have found a simpler, easier, cheaper way of building a bridge across the Gulf? I think part of the answer to that comes in that phrase, King of the Jews, that Mark has repeated several times. A phrase that the soldiers use a phrase that the chief priests use, a phrase that Mark uses at the beginning of his gospel, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Back to our five acts, Jesus takes us to Act 3 and 4, Israel and Jesus. Don't worry, I'll be much briefer on these. Because in Israel, in the people of Israel, what God is doing is calling a people out, Within humanity, who will represent God to humanity and humanity to God. He's calling out a people who will act as a bridge between God and humanity, as a way of beginning to bridge that gulf. Really important to say that the the Israelite nation, the Jewish nation's call was always to be a catalyst. For the reconciliation of the whole of humanity. Not just themselves. At the beginning of God's call to Abraham. He says you will be a blessing for all people on earth. All nations will be blessed through you. But as we read through much of the Old Testament. We read the story of the people of Israel. Failing to live up to their vocation and calling. Again and again and again. Prophets. And judges and kings call the people back to their vocation. But they fail. And so God in Jesus Christ in Act 4 brings about the ultimate representative of God to his people and his people to God. Jesus is someone who embodies, and Mark uses both of these phrases several times, both what it means to be completely divine Mark describes him as the son of God, but also to be completely human. So he uses the phrase son of man. Jesus uses the phrase son of man himself. It's a Jewish way of talking about his mortality, his humanness. Mark uses the, word, the, word, the phrase son of God several times. It's a way of saying he is divine. He wasn't the only one to own that title, Some of the Caesars around Jesus' day, Tiberius Caesar, had some coins printed on which it said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. But Mark is taking that and saying, they're pretending to be divine because they follow after their father who they want to be divine. But Jesus, the one we're talking about, is the son of the Jewish God, the only God, the creator of heaven and earth. Why is this so important? I think it's so important because whatever the mechanism is, it seems the gulf between humanity and creation and God is so great that the only way that can be bridged, can be brought back together, can be restored, is if God works on behalf of both broken parties, both parties in the relationship. Our youngest son, Josh, we've got three boys. Our youngest son, Josh, graduated just a week ago, just over a week ago, uh, and he's been in Bristol. And so over the last four weeks, soon my wife and I have been down to Bristol and got to, to, to know and to love this wonderful image of the Clifton Suspension Bridge. And I don't know whether you've ever looked at a suspension bridge, this one, of course, from Isambard Kingdom Brunel, I thought, wow, what a feat of engineering. How on earth do you go about building it? And the answer, I think, I'm not actually a civil engineer, so you can correct me if I'm wrong afterwards. The answer is that you build it from both sides. So here's another even bigger suspension bridge being built somewhere in the southeast, in the, in, in the, uh, the far east, rather. And you see that they're building from both sides. I think the fact that Mark wants us to know Jesus on the cross is on the cross and that he is the son of God is his way of saying God is doing everything you need to bridge this gap. It's an old cliche but I think it's true that if religion is about trying to do things to get to God the Christian faith is not about do, it's about done. It's simply about what God has done to draw us back into relationship with him, to restore what was very good, to invite us back into being our true selves. Why? Why death? Why did Jesus actually have to die? Wasn't it enough for him to come and be incarnate, be one of us? It seems as if it wasn't. I don't know exactly why. Again, there are a few suggestions. The New Testament draws a number of analogies from different places that were familiar then, from the law courts, from the slave market, from the sacrificial system in the temple, but it doesn't give us one simple template. But there are glimpses of why Jesus had to die. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Something in the New and the Old Testament, Isaiah uses a similar image in which the whole sin of the world somehow is sucked into that point in the crucifixion of Christ. There's something so significant about the death of God. God surely by definition, if you define him in any other way, is someone who doesn't taste death. But on the cross he does. There's something so significant that needs to happen to deal with the whole weight of the sin, the division, the destruction, the addiction. Of the whole creation. This isn't an image or an analogy used in scripture, it's probably a heresy, but bear with me. When I think of the cross, I sometimes think of a black hole. If you know anything about black holes, you'll know they're so dense that nothing, not even light, can escape their gravitational pull. They're mind blowing, aren't they? Talk about mysterious and complexity. I wonder, I just wonder if there's something about the death of God that works not in the same way but is of such significance that somehow the whole dross and sin and division and destruction and defamation of God's good creation is sucked into that point in human history once and for all if we let it or another analogy, probably another heresy. I wonder whether some of you perhaps have been under the surgeon's knife recently, in which case I apologise for this picture. But just imagine, and again, some of you will, might even be in this place, just imagine that you have a body that's riddled with disease. It's got to every part of the body. If there was some way of giving an injection or a drug or something to one part, to one organ in the body, that would suck the disease to one central place, so that that one central organ could be the ultimate representative of both the body and the disease, and if it could be taken out, the body would be whole again. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would be costly for that organ. And I wonder whether, again, that's just a little glimpse, a picture of what happens at the cross, And of course you can't talk about the cross without talking about the resurrection. Because the other reason that God himself in Christ has to die is that death is the ultimate disconnection from each other and from God. And so God himself steps into death. Sometimes I think when people read about the resurrection they feel as if Jesus goes into death and then bounces back. A bit like Lazarus did. But I think Jesus does something completely different. He goes into death, through it, and out the other side. Another image, another little picture of why God has to come and give his life in Christ for us so that we can be made safe, we can be saved. The cry on the cross is, he saved others but cannot save himself. Mark, I think, wants to say, how true. He could only save others by choosing not to save himself. Sometimes when I'm interviewing clergy, I ask them um, a difficult question, which is, if you were to try and summarize the whole of the gospel in one short passage, which would you choose? I often go back to 2 Corinthians chapter five where Paul says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the cosmos to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. What does it do, the cross? It achieves for you and me a safe place. Reconciliation, homecoming, restoration of relationship, freedom, forgiveness, invitation into partnership to share this forgiveness, this reconciliation with the whole creation. Why does God go through it? Simply because he loves you. Simply because you're the apple of his eye. The cross, I think, confers on anybody who accepts it and Christ two things the world is desperate for. Acceptance and status. Most people today are desperate for acceptance. They're desperate to be reconnected, to be restored back to relationship. Most people are desperate for status. They want to be somebody. And the way many people today, perhaps you and me too, try to achieve these two things is by doing more things. Even in church, we can try harder to be a person of status. And we think once we've got status, once we're someone, we'll be accepted. The story of the cross is the story of done. God says to you and me this morning, you don't need to do anything. You don't need to try. You don't need to strive. I want to give you the gift of being my child. Restored in my image. Have my love lavished on you so that you can be mine that's the biggest the best the greatest status in the world and because I accept you sometimes and I'll finish with this sometimes when we talk about the cross especially if we get trapped in in models of the atonement sometimes I think we can portray the cross as the way that God gets to love us I don't think that's true at all you know Uh, Some people almost say that when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you, he looks at Jesus and then accepts you. Almost as if he's saying, well, I'll hold my nose, but I've got to love you, so I'll, I'll just look at Jesus and put my arm around you. Actually, the story of God's relationship with us is that he's potty about us and will do anything and everything, even give his life, to pave the way back into relationship, to restore us, to make us safe, to give us hope and freedom and grace. This morning he lays before us an open door as he did with the two little ones that were baptised. I love both adult and infant baptism but I think the thing infant baptism stresses is that it's always and always is God's initiative and he doesn't look at B. and um, Bethany Rose and say, well, when you're old enough and you understand the mechanics of the cross... You can join my family. He says it's there, it's a gift. And he says that to you and me this morning. I'm going to move into a time of prayer. I don't know whether I've long overrun my time, but if you'd like to stand, I'll just say a prayer and then hand over to Andrew. The writer, the American writer, Brené Brown, some of you will come across, says that shame is fear of disconnection. It's being convinced that we're not worthy. And I think God today wants to deal with some shame to give us a sense of being restored to be the people he created us to be. Not to be someone else, but to be more fully ourselves. And so, Father, we pray that you will give us a fresh vision of you running down the road to embrace us as the father did to the prodigal son. I pray that this morning, those of us that feel shame, that look around and think, they're worthy, but I'm not. might know you looking directly at us and beckoning us, calling us, inviting us into restored relationship with you, into a safe place, a place of complete freedom and forgiveness. Lord, would you pour your spirit of freedom and grace out on each and every one of us Would you come and help us to let you love us? Put down our shields and our walls and allow your restoration and your forgiveness and your hope to run deep within us. Thank you, Phil.